0: So, welcome to Denton North Church. Um, We're really glad you're here. I see some new faces, I think, from some of our other churches, which is awesome, which had the leadership conference deal yesterday. So, if you see somebody you don't recognize, whether they're from another church in our family churches or somebody new, make sure you you greet them and meet them and, and introduce yourself. So, we're glad you're here. We've got only a couple of announcements today. The first is this URL behind me. DentonNorthChurch.com slash donate. You don't have to go to it right now, but basically we have a new giving platform we want to let you guys know about. It's hopefully a lot simpler. So we wanted to announce it so that as you're testing it, if you have some feedback or some issues, you can let us know, me, Brad, or Leslie, or Melissa. So if you want to check out that page at any time, even during the passing of the offering basket, if you just want to skip the line kind of deal, it's kind of like the Chick-fil-A app. You can just do it whenever you want. You can skirt the whole line. It's pretty great. But it's new. It allows you to set up a recurring gift if you like. I know that's a a big request we've had a lot of times. People want to do that. Or people who didn't like the PayPal system because they don't like PayPal, they don't have PayPal, whatever it is. So this is our new giving platform in terms of on our website. And you can do that anytime instead of the Swiper if you'd like. And if you have feedback or issues, please let us know. It's still in kind of a testing phase. So thank you guys for being patient with us, trying to improve the, the ways for you to give. It's one thing to talk about giving in like the different talks we've been doing, but then not have a way that makes it make sense or make, is easy for you guys to do that, or it's just confusing. So we want to have both be part of, of our church, have a good attitude toward giving, and have as good of a platform of giving as we can as, of a small church. So you'll notice also that if, if you use this new platform, there's a box that allows you to cover the fees of your gift if you're using a credit card. That's just something you should know about. You don't have to do that, but it's really, really helpful because think about every gift is a a couple dollars or whatever off of it because of the credit card transaction fees. So this is a cool platform because it's built for churches that are kind of small like ours. So if if you'd like to cover that transaction fee yourself, you totally can. It's very simple. So any questions, please direct those to me or Brad or Leslie, and uh, thank you guys so much. I'm going to pray over the offering basket, and then we'll pass it. Lord, thank you so much for, for this day and this chance to just praise you, together as a body. Thank you for uh, the ways that you moved at the leadership conference yesterday, uh, the speakers you spoke through, the wisdom in the room. Lord, well, I just pray that you would direct us as a church, as a family of churches, to follow um, follow your lead through the next generations, through the next years, the ways we need to adapt. Lord, well, I just pray that you'd be all over our direction and, and leading our steps as a church. Thank you so much for your son, for your sacrifice, and for just loving us as we are. And we pray. Amen.
1: Uh, For those of you who missed the Leadership Conference, it might be kind of cool to have a couple people share maybe best ideas. For those of you who don't know what it is we did, uh, I can't control that, okay? They're working on it, I'm sure, you know? All right, yeah. Okay, no, I'm not going to yell. Anyway, um, so yeah, uh, the Leadership Conference is basically an opportunity for us to get all of our churches together along with Focus and Leadership. And basically do free training for a day on something that's important to leaders. And so yesterday we did innovation and creativity. and uh, so if you missed it, I believe those recordings are going to be on a podcast somewhere. I don't know, really that kind of stuff, uh, although I should. So I do want to give an opportunity, though, because of some of you may were not there, uh, two for you guys to share so I mean, kind of just uh, maybe two or three. Good, really good ideas, things you took away. Um, from the leadership conference yesterday, so loud and proud, if you will, and I'll probably repeat you for the recording. Yeah, um, Sarah talked a little bit about uh, Gen Z or iGen, and I think one of the things that kind of stuck for a lot of people was just how risk averse some of them are, and so, you know, in in creativity and innovation, you've got to be willing to fail and do things wrong. Uh, and God gives us that freedom to do that, um, to do things, try things uh, as the Spirit leads and guides us. So that's that's pretty great to hear, especially for some of you that that struggle with that a little bit more. Great. So, well, yeah. So yeah, the you know the whole idea of not criticizing a generation—it's very easy, particularly for the generation right before them. But recognizing how so many trends. Uh, I was just thinking through all of the real positive things, some of which I'll talk about today, and how God has created culture like that, so generational shifts can re-correct or correct things that have gone wrong before. It adds new problems and issues, but that's the, you know, culture that God has given us, the design, and I think that's really encouraging. Just one more? Yeah. um, So the idea that mentioned about unlicensed preaching, and that we are all preachers in a day and age where people need to hear and won't hear it from here. And we've got to get creative, like John Bunyan did with writing his spiritual allegory, to make sense of the scripture in a way that lots of people would read and understand. Uh, And uh, that's a really important idea. Well, thank you guys for sharing. Um, Got other questions, or I want to know a little bit more about it. Again, someone maybe who knows more than me can inform me at some point through text during my sermon where to find those. Or you can be looking at them if you get bored with what I'm saying. All right, uh, so... We're here in the really the the smack dab middle of our sermon series on identity. And I get that it's been a little complex and kind of hard to understand. So this week, what I did was I went back through the next eight sermons and tried to kind of give them a simple tagline that counters some identity that we get from our environment. Okay, so like for instance, last week's sermon, which some of you loved, and others of you were like, "What is exactly that we talk about?" That's fine, no worries. Uh, we'll summarize that whole talk with "You aren't just a brain in a body." That's pretty easy, right? And so the idea is that we have that tagline: "You aren't just a brain in a body." Instead, it, it assumes you're something else. Okay, the thing that I wrote here, uh, it, if I were going to sort of like you know respond to the "I'm not just a brain in a body." is the idea that we are a head and a heart that is home to God, okay? So you can, in terms of activities for these sermons, which many of you don't do, um, I'm gonna pretend like maybe it's because it's too difficult, so hopefully this one won't be that difficult. You take the statement, figure out, okay, what we're saying you're not, and then take what we've talked about or your own study and add something that we are, right? So you aren't just a brain and a body. How would you respond to that? I'm a head and a heart, and it's home to God. Alright, and then you try to find a psalm that makes sense, or it could be an in Christ passage that makes sense of that identity. So you're trying to not just have a statement, but prove that statement from Scripture. Alright, so you aren't just a brain and a body, or a head and a heart, home to God. What psalm, what in Christ passage could I find that would help me uh, really truly inculcate this, uh, uh, internalize this uh, identity thing about myself? Alright, sound good? So I'm going to read Psalm 73 for a number of reasons, the first of which is because I think it talks about this idea that we have a head and a heart and uh, we've been given those by God and he makes a home, although the home in our heart, in our, uh, our head thing doesn't kind of come through until the New Testament, so I think it's even kind of interesting uh, to look at some of the, um, the references to this happening later on, God making his home inside of us and in our hearts. Uh, in even the Old Testament but I'm also reading Psalm 73 because it does a pretty good job of transitioning what I'm going to talk about today which is we aren't what we make okay simple as that right we aren't what we make and I don't mean that just in terms of how much money you make but probably for more of you the achievement the honor that comes from what we do with our brains our minds our personality whatever we aren't what we make yeah okay great So, Psalm 73, this is a longer one, I'm sorry, uh, because I know it's hard to understand, so I'll read it slow, maybe take some pauses for effect, you know. Surely God is good to Israel. This is Psalm 73, by the way. To those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Looking at people who are doing pretty good. But they're evil and wondering, wait a second, why is that not my life? They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Whew. Therefore, their people turn them, turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. So therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakens. You arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish You destroy all who are unfaithful to you, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. So that's a good starting place if you want to kind of have a sense of like, so how do you take what we did last week and make sense of this? You know, I I think in essence what uh, David is ultimately talking about, and actually I think this is a Psalm of Moses, I can't remember, it's later on, um, is that I'm going to take refuge in God, even though the world around me seems to be doing it all on their own and seem to be fine apart from God. And so I think that fits really well into uh, what we talked about last week. Dead gummit, I forgot to bring my matchbook. Does anyone have a matchbook just on them? No? Man, that's my one thing I was supposed to do this morning is bring a set of matches. So let's just pretend I have some matches. Let's visualize, imagination. Psh!
0: <laughs>
1: right? My match. Wave it out real quick. I oh, have a funny story about Chelsea. She likes to just sometimes do the matches and just smell them and then put them back down. I do not. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I just like how it smells, you know. It's dangerous. So, a match. The guy that originally created what we now know as the match, his name was John Walker, all right? And he was a chemist, and he started selling this match to people about 200 years ago, kind of in and around where he was. Well, all of his friends were like, dude, this is an amazing invention, this this is so much less dangerous than what we had before, you've got to patent this. John did not patent this, and that's why most of us have really never heard of him, and if you try to research him, we know nothing other than he was a chemist, and he refused to patent the invention of the match. That would have been a pretty good thing to patent, right? And the jury is still out, I would say, uh, most accounts of people who knew him said he refused to patent it because he thought it was too dangerous, particularly during the Industrial Revolution, and didn't want people stuck in a factory making matches. Now, he was also a pretty wealthy guy, and so he might have just said, who cares, I don't. doesn't really matter, I don't know. But I tell you that story simply to say that this is an example of a lot of examples throughout history of when someone had a choice, okay, to be um, bigger than they were through an invention or something else, but chose inwardly not to take that on because they felt like it would harm and hurt other people. I think this is a really great example of what we're going to talk about today, and hopefully we'll circle back to this uh, in a moment. We aren't what we make. Now, my ending statement for this does not make any sense. So it makes sense to me. Don't worry about it. You make sense of your own. If we aren't what we make, then what are we, according to God? And in my mind, we are how we were made. What? We are how we were made. The idea of where we get our value in Christ comes not from the things that we are currently doing, the skills that we have, the accomplishments that we've attained. It comes from us being born in the womb and God simply creating us how he created us, and that's where our worth and value come from. This is very, very difficult, right? Not only is it difficult, but that idea alone changed the face of Western civilization for the most part, and that we started to honor and care for people, everyone, not just those who have achievement. You think about uh, this, so we aren't what we make, we are how we were made. So your goal for this next week is to try to figure out what the heck that means and find an in Christ passage, one that I didn't include, or a psalm that makes sense of that for you, so that you can reference it back in uh, your mind. Now, this whole idea of we aren't what we make is very challenging for us as individual Americans because we've been told almost since birth that that's just not true. Somehow, in our identities, we can hold at the same time that we're valuable just because we're humans, but not valuable unless we really achieve or accomplish something of value. Now, that's just contradictory. I don't understand how we could possibly have both of those, but that's just human nature. We have all kinds of mixed-up ideas in our head, okay? So this value thing comes from a variety of places. The two that I mostly want to focus on today are the whole idea of how much money you make and what you've actually achieved, whether that's your job, whether it's you know a hobby, whatever it is, we take a lot of value and identity from those things that we've done. Now, just from the very basic starting place here. Apart from Christ, apart from um, even, you know, incredible human wisdom, sociology for the most part tells us, and I'm a sociologist, so whether you like it or not, uh, that most of the things that we accomplish have very little to do with any kind of individual talent or skill we have, and way more to do with the surroundings. So you take one person put them in another environment, and they will accomplish and achieve something very different simply by the environment they're in. Now, you may believe that, you might not. This is that nature-nurture thing. But even for those of us who feel very accomplished, and we ought to, as college students in the richest nation uh, or college graduates, we often don't pay much attention to how those very things that we call skills and achievement were more or less handed to us by our surroundings. Okay? Okay. And uh, that's just a tricky idea. I'm going to throw that in there because even if you, let's say, haven't bought into this whole Christian worldview thing, you would at least, I think, hopefully understand that so much of what you've done and who you are comes from the environment you were raised in and not because you're some superstar uh, and have really accomplished all that apart from uh, where you're at. Now, that's a whole other conversation. I don't to get too far into that one. So I want to just give you kind of two points here and two scriptures like I usually do. The first one's going to be Philippians 4, 10 through 20. The other one's going to be Ephesians 1. And these are in Christ passages, and if you're just catching on to what that means, this is where we're doing the whole identity thing from. In Christ passages are the passages that tell us who we are, what our identity is in Christ. And it's the best way to figure out your identity, who you are, is by uh, focusing on the Paul scriptures, he uses this, uh, this phrase and term a whole lot of being in Christ. Okay? So, even though we aren't what we make, we are instead how we were made by God. Philippians 4, 10 through 20 tells us we are blessed with everything we need from God. So let's read Philippians 4, 10 through 20. In fact, actually, someone else could read that. I like when other people read, although I guess it's really not on the recording. Uh But uh, someone who, you know, can read with gusto, stand up, read loud, please, go for it, with gusto, 10 through 20, and kind of pause for effect when you get near the in Christ kind of passages, yeah, all right, awesome, excellent, awesome, man,
0: love it, that's great,
1: so, uh, my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Now, you can't read this passage uh, and not be like, uh, Paul, what's wrong with you, man? You just said you're in need and you've learned to be content whether you have plenty or don't and then on the other side said God will meet all your needs in Christ. So what happened? That obviously doesn't make much sense. What most people have done to try to reconcile this passage is simply said what Paul is really saying is that he'll meet the things that you need spiritually, but it doesn't necessarily mean that translates into what you need physically. And I'm not so sure that's a really great argument, because I think most of us know now just how much spiritual needs and physical needs and all these things sort of go together. What I'll suggest to you from this passage is at least opens up the argument to, in Christ, apparently according to Paul, Jesus provides us with everything we need. That is a part of our identity, you're going to have to make sense of what this passage is talking about. Is he talking about physical needs? Is he talking about spiritual needs? What does that mean? Uh, to go even further in this, which I think is uh, you know kind of been tr- challenging for some, is Paul saying that I've learned a-, a secret, which is apparently a secret of being content no matter if I have a lot or if I don't have a lot. Now, most of us in this room have not learned that secret. Okay. And and I don't mean that in any kind of way as uh, like, oh, well, we're just, you know, really spiritually inept. I'm saying most of us have never actually been in a situation, even near what Paul or most of his audience had experienced, where they really were in need. I mean, we've got a long list of needs and things that we think we need, but talking, you know, back to like Maslow's hierarchy of needs where you've got basic shelter and food and things like that, We probably haven't really learned this lesson and probably won't ever learn this lesson so long as we're living in the richest nation we're in, living in the environments we're in, and uh, so we're already at a deficit uh, in regard to this, okay? At least from a physical standpoint, if we're going to draw that distinction. But Paul says the secret is right there. What is the secret, he says? It's not still a secret. He just opened it up for everybody, People often quote this passage, but don't quote it in the context of what Paul is actually saying, which is being content in, uh, in the situation you're in. So what's the secret of not being content anymore? Of being content and not being in one? You guys got it opened up before you. Maybe I should have the passage on the screen. Sorry. No. What's the secret? No. Yeah, you can do everything, right, through Christ who gives him strength. So no matter if he's not got his needs met, he can still do things through Christ who gives him the strength to do those things even when he's in need, okay? And in doing uh, so, fills us up in that same. So we have this issue, okay? We aren't what we make. Instead, being a part of Christ, we're blessed with everything we need from God, but we still hoard just in case, and that's just part of human nature. We hoard. We hoard stuff. Whether it's achievements, whether it's money, whether it's things. Some of you watch that hoarder show, or I don't know if it's around anymore. That show makes me physically sick. But what we don't recognize is many of us do the exact same things with non-material stuff. We hoard a lot. We hoard experiences, things that we think, you know, made up our identity in the past. We hoard achievements. We hoard being honored by certain people at certain times because at the core, we've got this great and wonderful backup plan which is, you know, if God doesn't actually provide like he promised he would, everything I need, I'll at least have all this other stuff to kind of fall back on, okay? So we hoard. We do a lot of hoarding. The problem with hoarding is just really one thing. We're in a world with limited resources, And when we hoard, we're taking something away from someone else. And this is really tricky and I'm actually not just talking about this in like a physical uh, way. We may be taking an opportunity away from someone to give us honor or to take care of a need we have by hoarding and making people feel like they have nothing to give to us. We, in particular, uh, are incredibly rich, uh, we have a lot of security that comes from job security, and I'm talking even to you Gen Z people who lived through the recession, and I know things have been tough, and jobs are much harder to find than your parents, uh, and which leads to all of this risk-averseness and these things. Even then, guys, you are far more uh, uh, materially blessed than most of the people around the world. And I think most of you understand that and have a sense of anxiety and stress for it, so I'm not, like, preaching something to you that you don't get or don't understand. But hoarding... One of my uh, favorite sociologists who goes around and speaks from uh, conference to conference talks about how in in our day and age, we don't have a word for overprivileged. We just have privileged and underprivileged. And I've talked about this before. That kind of doesn't make sense. Why is it that in our common vernacular, we have no word for overprivileged? You're either underprivileged, you've got the right amount of privilege, or you're overprivileged. Mostly because in our society, we value being overprivileged. And therefore, the whole idea of overprivileged, of hoarding things, keeping things from other people, doesn't weigh in. We deserve it. We achieved it. We earned it. This is ours. Guys, at the heart of it, God is, and I'm going to get into a lot of trouble for this statement that I'm saying, particularly because Andrew Lancioni is here and he's going to tell his father in law. God is a communist. God hates communism, but He is a communist. Communism, at its core, is a distribute a a distribution of things as people need them in accordance with their ability. It's a terrible system. It never works, and it it can't possibly work in a uh, society of people who hoard, which is all humans. But God, at his core, is a communist. He wants to distribute to everybody as they have need in accordance with the ability that they have to produce what they have. That's just what the scripture talks about. The whole idea of roles, spiritual roles in uh, the church, the idea of gifting, even the idea of discipline, God is giving to people as they have need in accordance with their ability and the faith that he has given them or the surroundings have given them, whatever you figure it out. Okay? Okay? But he absolutely is a communist, and again, I I want to really explain here (laughs) that this statement, because democracy, I do believe, comes from God, at least as the best system that we have of government, and communism comes from Satan, (laughs) and Marx himself uh, talked about how, with communism, there's no need for religion, and that's just ridiculous. So, but God himself very much is uh, uh, a communist, (laughs) So deal with that, all right? You figure that out uh, on your own. So with that said, and some of you Gen Z people are like, yeah, that's what I've been talking about, you know, I'm voting for Bernie, you know, I'm definitely a communist. Okay, first of all, you're not a communist, you're a socialist, and they're very, very different. And to try to understand the differences requires a little bit of a, a background and particularly an understanding of the difference between a, an economic system and actually a governmental system, which we don't have time to do today. We'll just... We'll just, I'll just say it like this. Socialism isn't my favorite, but at least democratic socialism, which is like the least of socialism, is something that we already have in our country and in every country. And so the idea that we're fighting either for or against it is ridiculous. We're either fighting how much of it and how little of it, okay? Because we, we have plenty of democratic socialist programs in our country. If you want more of a lesson on what those are, let's talk about it. Am I voting for a democratic socialist no, not even close, but I just want to be clear on where my position is on that, uh, even though I'm maybe not supposed to say that kind of stuff. I think I'm just not supposed to advocate for someone in particular. I can talk bad about people all day long, I think. And I've spent plenty of time talking bad about Trump, so, uh, legally. Well, actually, you know, the, t- the tax benefit thing. Let's, let's not record this part. Let's cut this uh, <laughs> from God is a communist to this point. End. Delete. All right, great. There's an idea among many of you, whether you're millennial or Gen Z, that our government ought to fix a lot of our problems. This is a strange idea to me, but I'm not completely opposed to it. But I want you to think about something for a moment, okay? Because what you've done, I think, is translated this uh, opinion and belief you have to the church. Our church ought to fix the problems in the world around us. Sounds like a really, really good idea. The only bad part is the church has tried that multiple times before, and it's always failed. Ryan went to a conference, an outreach conference a couple weeks ago, and the question was, would the city miss your church if your church was gone? One of those questions that a number of you already did the whole, hmm, deep. Let me ask you something. Is that really our goal as a church? That the city would miss our church if our church ceased to exist tomorrow? Are we really a community service organization? Is that really the vision that God has given us? That we just go out and help people with their material and physical needs so that they know, hey, you know, this is going to be a place where I can get some money, get some help, move up in the world. I want to give you two examples of how I think that might not work. Number one is Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas lived in a time period in 1200 AD where monks had largely become the most privileged and uh, highest rung on the social ladder. Monks lived in rural areas. They had a lot of money. The communities would rely on these monks for their own well-being. And as a result, these people got rich themselves, and everybody relied on the Catholic Church for uh, help and assistance. Well, you can read the history and figure out what happened, but what happened ultimately is all the people who were distributing this kind of got big heads, and all of the wrong people got into these positions in the first place, and therefore hoarded a lot of that money for themselves. Who would have thought? Hmm. So what Thomas Aquinas did, even though he grew up from a rich family, decided he wanted to go be a part of this brand new 10-year-old order, okay, called the Dominicans. And the Dominicans had a reverse idea on what being a monk should be. They didn't live in the, the rural areas. They lived in cities. They didn't farm to make their money. They were beggars and chose to be beggars on purpose. Aquinas got rid of all of his wealth, decided to live on the street from place to place, preaching the word to what monks would have called heretics. It was so bad at one point that, uh, of course, you know, Aquinas came from a pretty well-to-do family. His brothers kidnapped him and, and put him under house arrest for an entire year until they finally realized that this wasn't going to work. He was going to be a Dominican one way or the other. But his idea of helping people and the order itself was one-on-one in the streets Not, I have money, I'm going to distribute it to you, but I have nothing, you have nothing, let me give you what I can. Whether it's a home for now, whether it's food for now, uh, whether it's guidance and teaching and preaching to the people, that's what I've got. So, why is it that we have this idea that we've got to do these big social things from the perspective of the church as a whole? Some of it's because we're risk-averse, sure, We don't want to have to go out there and directly do it. It's much easier for us to say, let's just distribute this from the church, from the church fund, from an organization. But what it ultimately does is it separates us from having much responsibility in the first place for doing anything on our own. And we've got to be really careful about that. It's, uh, we allow ourselves to basically uh, redistribute uh, without actually redistributing in our own lives. And so it's a perfect system for people who already have a lot to tell another system that they ought to help other people. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Who wants to read this one? Uh, in Ephesians 2, which is the end of this uh, kind of whole thing, we get a passage that is often quoted, but again out of context. I want to read it for you real quick. It's 8 through 10. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So, to bring this down a little bit, all of these passages are ultimately talking about how in Christ we are filthy rich. Rich with the blessings of God given to each as is needed and ex- people expected of what we can give, and yet we still have a tendency to hoard all of these things so as uh, you know to have kind of a safety net. And even our most recent Wanting to give to people often looks like wanting some other organization to give, and so I'll give $50 for an organization to do something for other people without doing anything myself and feeling good about, uh, you know, the guilt that we have for all of the things that we ultimately hoard. But the second part is perhaps even more important because it has to do more with the achievement aspect than the money aspect. So, we aren't what we make, we are how we're made, Instead, we are freed from being or earning good to actually doing good, okay? We're freed from the pursuit of trying to prove that we're good, earn goodness, so that we can actually do good. Now, this is a really, really hard idea to grasp because many of us were more concerned with making sure that people see us as good or doing activities that come across as good... Rather than being freed to do good out of a confidence that we are already created good by God in Christ. And this becomes really, really challenging. And so I want to talk a little bit about, you know, kind of how this works. So you think back to Thomas Aquinas. And, you know, the the order had become basically a Christian institution organization that hoarded all the wealth. And then through benevolent opportunities gave to people as it looked good for them. Okay? Uh, Thomas Aquinas, in one of his uh, probably best quotes, and this was the, uh, the Latin, uh, I think it was the Latin saying for their entire uh, order, Thomas believed that it's better to cast light for others than to merely shine oneself. He believed that it's better to cast light for others than merely to shine oneself. I can't read the Latin here, so I'm not going to even try to. And I think we've got this issue in Christianity, and in particularly our society, that we will shine light for others so long as we've got ours first. And this is the whole idea of being created to do good, not having to work to be seen as good in our daily lives. Probably the person uh, uh, that most exemplifies this is a lady who I really encourage you to read for a number of reasons called Teresa Vavia, And uh, Teresa lived during a really, really tough time in the Spanish uh, Inquisition. Uh, She was born and raised Jewish, and if you know anything about the Spanish Inquisition, it was not cool to be Jewish. Why not? Because Christians decided it wasn't cool for you to be Jewish. They had a lot of power, they had a lot of wealth, and they said, eh, I don't think we're going to do Jewish anymore. Uh, Let's just immediately convert everybody uh, and make it to where they won't be able to gain privilege or position or power if they don't convert to Christianity. So her family lost the name, got rid of it, paid to get rid of the name. And for a lot of Jewish people in uh, Spain during this time, it was uh, a necessity. You had to pay to get rid of your name and your heritage so you could immediately become a Christian. Now, somehow in all of that, she still decides she's going to serve Christ, become a nun in the Carmelite order. And she finds that the nunneries, I don't think that's the right word, uh, where we create ends, are just as corrupt as the larger society around them. They mirror the society around them. They're no different. So I want to read you a quote um, from kind of early on in her life because I think this one's pretty amazing. So she was largely living a life of religious pretense, gossiping in the parlors, appearing to be prayerful, but often simply concerned with her own personal esteem. The situation at the convent of the Incarnation at the time mirrored that in society with a class system and over a hundred nuns. Teresa, because she was Jewish or at some point had been, being of minor nobility, had an apartment with a kitchen. She had her own sister living with her for some time. Other rich nuns had suites of rooms, whereas the poor sisters lived in dormitories and served the well-to-do as domestic servants. Think about that for a moment. As this is the history of Christianity, and uh, this lady is thrown into a situation at a church, which is supposed to be reflecting who God is, and all it is is reflecting the very society around it. Really sad, but you know, the cool part of this story is Teresa would go on to become one of the most influential nuns in the Carmelite order, and she reversed everything about how they did stuff. She studied Aquinas, she did, not to the degree that uh, Aquinas did in terms of a, a vow of poverty. She changed the class system completely. She made sure that no nuns got better residents than others. She made sure that people actually spent time talking honestly about their faith rather than just simply trying to impress people with how good and how great they really are. And so I would encourage you to read back on uh, her life. It's a pretty, pretty great one. So I guess what I'm trying to say with all of this, which has turned out to be far headier than I wanted it to, I've got to stop preparing for my sermons, guys. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going back to the 15 minutes before church sermon prep because this is what happens when I spend a week on a sermon, okay? All right? Now, it becomes like a book, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going back next week to the 15-minute sermon prep. Hi, Michelle. Good to see you too. Um, not yet. Not question time yet. Okay, so we aren't what we make. Uh, and this is uh, something that's so internal to us and, and so uh, forming of our identity that it's very, very hard for us to get past uh, what this looks like, whether it's achievement and how people see us and our reputation or actually the things in material uh, that we rely on and uh, all those things. So I had an experience this week with Metro Auto Ministry. And Metro Auto Ministry fundraiser, guys, thank you so much for those of you who donated. This really has become our church's deal uh, and each year, I mean, we doubled what we raised this year from two years ago. We helped so many people in the community. This is an incredibly tangible, um, you know, ministry where, you know, I mostly get to interact with them, and which is the least p- best person for them to interact with. Uh, but, hey, so if any of you want to help out, I really don't know how you would, but maybe take phone calls, maybe vet people. Anyway, I appreciate that. I had a lady this week call me, uh, uh, we do kind of like a, um, after a month, I give them a text message saying, hey, uh, when are you going to pay the remaining of your balance? Uh, for those who've had like really, really expensive repairs, two months, I like give them a phone call, usually try to leave a message hoping I don't have to talk to them. Uh, and the third one, I'm kind of like, hey, you know, we really stuck our neck out for you, we really uh, need you to pay at least some of the money that you owe, and uh, I made the mistake of calling this one in, and this is what happens when I call uh, people, they Talk to me for literally 45 minutes to an hour, and sometimes I just have to hang up and pretend like my phone went dead, um, because I'm not strong enough as a person to say, in the midst of their terrible stories, like, hey, I really don't want to talk about this right now, Uh, so stop calling me. Anyway, she talked about how things were going, you know, really rough, and, and she explained this, and she's been really sweet, she's kept up, she's been very thankful, blah, blah, blah. And um, what we do normally at that three-month period is just cancel their debt and let them know, listen, it sounds like you're not the place where you can pay for this. We're going to go ahead and take care of it for you. No big deal. And uh, I did that whole thing where I hung up. And you got to keep your phone off for at least five minutes. I don't think you hung up on them. Uh, it seemed like you maybe dropped it or something. I'm just being honest here. Honest and vulnerable, okay? Uh, so I sent her a text back. I say, listen, we're going to cancel the debt completely no big deal, and she's like, no, 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 like, no, well, no, no, I'm going to pay you back, it's all, you know, like, listen, just accept this as a gift from God, uh, God isn't always fair, he's good, uh, and I just thought about that, and then I gave her the reference with the uh, parable of the, um, the workers in the vineyard, and she texted back, she's like, what do you mean God's not fair, like, I was like, oh, no, why did you say it like that, and I said, no, no, no. I'm just trying to tell you that God isn't just a fair God, he doesn't just give to people in what they deserve, that's capitalism and socialism, God gives as they need and expects what they can do. Uh, Don't say that ever again. (laughs) And it led to a really actually neat conversation. Apparently, she's just started studying the Bible. She really needs to understand more about what's being said. And so we had this great conversation that was such a better conversation than me listing, her listing all the things that are going wrong in her life. And me being like, I can't do anything but just kind of give you some car repair, okay? Um... And uh, and that's what we put at the end of our post. And I want to remind you of that because I think that's a really important uh, statement sort of at the end of this whole uh, conversation is God isn't just fair, he is good. And he's good because he gives according to the need. If you don't remember the parable of the sowers, uh, or the uh, workers in the vineyard, remember how he gives the same amount of money for the person that shows up in the morning, works all day, to so the same amount of money to the last person that comes in. This is one of the most meaningful stories in economics, I think, for us, if we're really trying to understand economics from a scriptural perspective. You can imagine how amazed, how floored. and um, you know, uh, Rick Watts, in one of his talks during Reframe, does this story, retelling of that story, and it'll make you cry every time. Uh, of just how amazing God is when he gives to us uh, based on our need and not just what we put in or what we achieved. Uh, so I'm going to end there because I've, I've hit my time over like two or three minutes. Yes, Michelle, you've got a question. We always take a few questions at the end of these, uh, um, these sermons and stuff, particularly in these most recent ones. What? Yeah, okay. Oh, Teresa, have you? A-V-I-L-A. Uh Gosh. Her, so she became, kind of became a mystic, and what that means is that she had all these, these visions, and her visions are what ultimately she can attributed to her leading this much less vapid life. I and, mean, you know, she struggled with that uh, her whole life. She grew up in an environment where she had to hide her identity, right? Uh, because she wasn't allowed to kind of let people know that she was Jewish. And so, yeah, in Spain. Yeah, during the Spanish Inquisition, which was one of the worst uh, in terms of that area. And it lasted for like 600 years. <laughs> Good old Christians, you know, forced... Uh, forced conversion. Okay, other questions about this in particular? Yeah, Claudia. Yeah, you know, I think uh, if we were to sort of um, honestly maybe write down the top ten things that have made up our identity, that have really made us feel like who we are, very few of those things we would be able to trace back to specific things that God has done or changed. Uh, Maybe being a Christian is an important one. So much of our identity is wrapped up in... um, you know, it's, it's, it's almost, so like I give an example of this, which I don't know scripturally if this is a good one. I'm just going to go with it. Every time when Mary had Jesus, someone would come and like prophesy on who Jesus would become. The, the author just basically said, and she treasured these things in her heart. And I think that's a good example of what could easily become something that we're hoarding in terms of experience. It's like, oh, I'm the mother of Jesus, you know. And Mary wasn't like that at all before. And, you know, we don't know anything about Mary. We're not, I'm not using that example of like, Mary went, went, Mary went south. <laughs> uh, but it is really interesting. Uh, and I've talked about a lot of Catholic folks, you know, the idea of, of uh, almost worshiping, you know, venerating Mary is, is an interesting one. So, yeah, the hoarding experience is one I just want to throw out there for you to kind of think through. I'd have to really get specific about what that means. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with just what we've achieved uh, at any given time, you know. Um, I know that me personally, uh, I take a lot, a lot of my identity from being able to fix things that other people can't fix. Um, and, uh, you know, it's one thing to believe that that's something that God has kind of enabled me to do, and a gift to people, but it's another when I am taking from them the opportunity to get that gift from me, and I'm just taking the opportunity to tell them, hey, I'm, I'm way better at this than you, uh, which yeah, I do with some regularity. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's the only option in my mind. Uh, And the repeating, yes, I know, I don't repeat. I forgot to repeat things. Uh, Claudia talked about hoarding experiences. I just said, you know, I don't know. Uh, Ryan uh, talked about the idea of our church being um, missed and uh, that people would, you know, expect things from our church. Number one, if you're a megachurch, yeah, absolutely. Because you become such a staple in a city. We're not a city church, guys. Uh, many of you think we are, and that's very strange. This model of church is not a city church model. We are nomadic people, <laughs> meaning today our church is about college students at UNT, and tomorrow it could be a family church for single mothers. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I doubt that would take such a huge shift, and if it did, I definitely wouldn't be here. Um, but, uh, we're nomadic. We're, God is, is, is taking uh, us on a path that fulfills a specific vision that he has, and that's important. Uh, how we affect and impact our community is always going to be through the individual things or small group stuff that you guys choose to do. And my biggest concern for this most recent generation is that they expect that our church should be doing all of these programs to help society and they're basically just passing the buck because they're too scared themselves of going and starting anything. Guys, Metro Auto Ministry came out of me working on a few people's cars, and the people were like, you probably ought to help people do some stuff. You know? Um, That's just an idea, man. I'm just working on cars. How many things could be important and amazing uh, you know, opportunities in our community that are just from individuals of you that our church isn't necessarily going to sign off on and pour resources into, Metro Auto Ministry is not a ministry of our church because our church doesn't pay for it. You guys pay for it. Uh, and various people in our churches pay for it. So it seems like maybe a slight distinction, but it's really not. Uh, people will miss individuals in our church who do a lot for the community of Denton. But that name isn't going to be under Focus or Denton North Church in terms of our resources going that way. That's just not who we are as a body of churches. Uh, Our goal is to empower individuals to do things in their community, not to do things in the community collectively as a church, Uh, which is what a lot of us would rather have, and we'd rather have it out of fear that we don't have anything to do, we don't have anything to give, Uh, and that's just not okay. We're empowered leaders here um, to do things. Does that kind of make sense a little bit? Yeah, okay, good. It's just a growing trend. I'm feeling that more and more of us are like, man, Denton should be doing this thing and that thing and the other, and I'm like, with what? army, like it's Leslie and I, man, you know, um, and I meet with you know, four or five people in a week and I'm like exhausted, you know, so uh, I don't know, that's probably just not going to work. i to have to come up with some more innovative ideas to think through. Maybe one more? Yeah. So it, the question is, how do we get individual about the things that we do uh, without uh, taking too much of our own honor and achievement? Listen, it's the opposite, guys. When you get in and do start doing stuff with people, the honor comes from doing the significant stuff. What we want instead is the honor of being a part of an organization that's known in our community for doing this, that, or the other. So if I'm, you know, a member at Spring Creek Church over in, you know, Garland that basically got rid of payday loans, I'm telling people about my church and what I've done, even though I didn't do anything but maybe spent $5 once uh, on this cause. You know, doing ministry like Metropolitan Ministry or any other ministry that's really kind of grassroots-based, the honor comes from doing the thing that you're doing often. Uh, if you're really true. It's the whole idea of doing good and recognizing that your confidence doesn't come from being a part of a movement or an organization. It comes from God enabling you to do the very things that you're doing. Um, And uh, I don't know, that one's a hard one, and it's an excellent question, but I think it's important to consider and kind of think through. I'm going to say a prayer, and then we're going to uh, move into our communion time. And I went a little long today, so if you guys can move back from communion uh, somewhat quickly, we'll uh, continue singing, and certainly you're welcome to ask me questions. Uh, if you have any. Lord, I fear that not a one of us in our day and age in the society we live in will ever really understand what it is to be in need. True uh, physical uh, desperation and a need. And I know that some of us probably have. I certainly haven't. Um, I don't think any part in my life. So I feel even guilty about talking about this stuff, um, trying to understand it as I live it through the eyes of other people. God, help us strike a balance. We want to be a generation that serves and loves and takes care of people, but doesn't pass the buck to large organizations or governments as if it's their responsibility. Nameless people and institutions. Give us a vision, sight to see what needs to be done in and around us. Give us the confidence in who you've made us to be. Um... To actually step out and to do good and to fail and to try our best to minister to the people right near and around us, far from us, wherever you call us. Help us to stop pulling our identity, <clears throat> excuse me, from what we do, what we can accomplish. And remember that our identity is already fixed in you and was fixed at birth. Jesus, we thank you for that. You had an amazing ability to treat everybody as if whatever they had done didn't matter compared to who they were. Give us that same strength and and character. Uh, In your name, amen.
0: Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week, and you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.